Okay, so we are um, going to look at our next, um, our next kind of passage uh, in Matthew 10 that we're looking at at the moment. And, and I suppose the thing, just as I was um, preparing this really, just struck afresh by how incredible it is that the teaching of one man 2,000 years ago still stands strong today. I mean, our, you know, it was written in context to a group of people, and things go out of date very quickly, don't they, in our world. And yet, the teaching of Jesus 2,000 years ago is still just as useful and relevant for life here today, 2,000 years later. It's remarkable. Um, and so we are in this series um, called, we're calling it Go. These are the instructions that Jesus gave to his 12 disciples. He sent them out and he sent them um, to announce the kingdom of heaven is near and to do all kinds of miracles. Um, and then he gives them lots and lots of instructions on how they should go. So as you go, do this or don't do this or take this with you or don't take this with you. Today's passage, we're in Matthew 10. We start at verse 16, uh, verse 23. And Jesus is going to reference four animals right at the top here, okay? Uh, now, the first one, uh, we're going we're to have sheep, wolves, snakes, and doves, okay? So sheep, uh, sheep are pretty vulnerable animals. They need a lot of caring for, mainly because they are stupid. Um, now, I actually grew up on a farm, and I had my own little flock of sheep um, when I was a teenager, and, um, and I can confirm that sheep are stupid. Here's a photo to demonstrate how stupid sheep are, <coughs> and here is one of my favorite videos in the entire world to also demonstrate how stupid sheep are. Are you ready for this? So he's stupid enough to have got stuck in this hole. <laughs> I think you might even get a slow motion replay in a minute, that much. <laughs> Isn't that spectacular? <laughs> um, I mean, yeah. So when, in a minute, when Jesus says that he's sending us out like sheep, you might, you might be tempted to think, oh, what a cute picture, you know, we're cuddly, we're lovable. I'm not sure it's the most complimentary of animals to be compared with people. I'm really sorry about that. Um, <clears throat> but yeah, sheep are very vulnerable. They need a lot of, lot of caring for. Uh, I, I went on a little bit of a, um, a kind of, I digressed this week looking for a, a video, and I found lots of videos of stupid sheep. Did you know they can get stuck upside down on their backs? Just, they just lie there in a field and get stuck and die unless somebody comes along and pushes them over. That's how ridiculous sheep are. Anyway, uh, wolves, the second animal. Uh, wolves are deceitful. Uh, we know the whole phrase of a wolf dressed in sheep's clothing. They are incredibly harmful to sheep. If you let them run amok, they are predators, uh, and they will look to prowl around and to devour uh, any harmless or uh, kind of any other animal, to be honest. Uh, snakes uh, are the third animal we come across. Snakes actually have a real instinct for self-preservation. So when snakes spot trouble, they slink off pretty quickly. Uh, in Scripture, 
Uh, they are often sneaky, crafty, uh, and it's quite a, a kind of negative um, picture of a snake. And then we have doves. Doves are harmless. They are innocent. They are no danger to anyone. When was the last time you heard of somebody being harmed by a dove? Um, it doesn't really happen. They are incredibly vulnerable as well. So let's bear that in mind as we read Matthew 10, um, starting at verse 16. This is Jesus talking to his 12 followers. He says, look, I am sending you out as sheep among wolves. So be as shrewd as snakes and harmless as doves. In other words, I'm sending you out as sheep among wolves. You are going to be vulnerable to attack. So be both shrewd and innocent. This is typical Jesus. If he'd have just said one thing, we would have latched onto it. So he gives us two contrasting images that we have to live in the tension of. There will be times where we need to be more shrewd, and there will be times where we need to be more innocent like doves. We have to wrestle this one through in individual circumstances. How do we live this out? We carry on. But beware, for you will be handed over to the courts and will be flogged with whips in the synagogues. You will stand trial before governors and kings because you are my followers. Now, interestingly, these instructions, the way they start out, it's really clear that Jesus is talking uh, to the 12 there and then. But as you go through, it just becomes quite obvious that he's broadening this out, that the timeline he has in mind goes beyond just this initial mission he is sending them on. And look what he says. He says, you will stand at trial before governors and kings because you're my followers. He doesn't say, you might be. He doesn't say, there's a possibility that this might happen. He says to his followers, you will stand trial. There will come a point where some of you will be dragged before the authorities because you are my followers. Uh, Let's carry on reading. But uh, this will be your opportunity to tell the rulers and other unbelievers about me. When you are arrested, don't worry about how to respond or what to say. God will give you the right words at the right time, for it is not you who are speaking, it will be the spirit of your father speaking through you. So persecution is inevitable, it will happen, but there are two things to bear in mind. First, it will be an opportunity to share the message of Jesus to those who are seeking to persecute you. And secondly, you really don't need to concern yourselves too much as to what you will say because you will have the Holy Spirit within you speaking. Now, it's interesting here, isn't it? The the kind of implication is that as a result of persecution, that will actually present an opportunity for the good news to be shared. The spreading of the gospel will happen as a result of persecution. And what do we read uh, later on in the book of Acts in the New Testament? This comes true. Uh, The whole passage becomes true in many ways. You have Peter and John in Acts chapter 4. They are arrested. Why? Because they are followers of Jesus. They are putting into practice the the mission that Jesus gave them, and they are hauled before the authorities, um, by the religious authorities primarily. And uh, they are kind of given a bit of a grilling. They take it as an opportunity to share the good news about Jesus, um, and then they are released. They let them go. But what do they do when they come back together 
um, with the, the other followers of Jesus, they pray, they, they, they tell them what happened first. And, uh, and then this is what they say. They say, and now, O Lord, hear, our, hear their threats and give us your servants great boldness in preaching your word. Stretch out your hand with healing power. May miraculous signs and wonders be done through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. After this prayer, the meeting place shook and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. Then they preached the word of God with boldness. This came true. It was an opportunity to share the good news about Jesus. And what did they do after that? They didn't cower away. They continued to preach boldly. They prayed for boldness and for God to stretch out his hand with healing power. And the gospel was preached. The kingdom grew. Interesting, that is mirrored throughout history. So a generation or two ago, uh, South Korea was one of the most um, kind of under-evangelized nations in the world, and uh, great persecution uh, was a normal thing for those who followed Christ. And what happened? The gospel spread. It is now, uh, there, is, there is a huge and thriving and healthy church in South Korea. Uh, that's in within the last hundred years or so. In Iran right now, there is huge persecution on those who, uh, who follow Jesus, particularly if you convert from Islam to Christianity, and the church is growing. It is one of the fastest growing churches in the world right now. This stuff is true. It's not, you know, Jesus saw this coming. He knew how this would work, and, uh, and it's true even today, 2,000 years later. Uh, Let's carry on with verse 21. A brother will betray his brother to death. A father will betray his own child. And children will rebel against their parents and cause them to be killed. Jesus was preparing his followers, saying to them, look, loyalty can lead to division and conflict even within a family. So it's not inevitable, uh, but it can and it does, doesn't it? There was hints in the Gospels that this was true even for Jesus himself. Uh, conflict with his own family, confusion as to who he was. Maybe that's something that you experience today. Maybe you've said yes to Jesus and you are following him, but you have family members who it's caused strife and division and confusion and conflict with. If that's the case, I would love the opportunity at the end, just going to pray when we wrap up here. I want to pray for you in particular, because that's really, really difficult. And Jesus is preparing his followers for that possibility. There were two Roman historians, um, I think they're called Pliny and Tacitus, and uh, they were writing around the time of the early church, and they actually tell stories of Christians being killed just 30 years later from Jesus' death and resurrection, some of them convicted on the testimony of family members. This came true for Jesus' early followers. When he says a brother will betray a brother to death, a father will betray his own child, that was happening 30 years later in the Roman Empire. Allegiance to Jesus became a crime punishable by death in the early second century in the Roman Empire, around 70 years after Jesus' death and resurrection. Even today, following Jesus is so offensive to some that in several nations around the world, Christians are killed for their faith. 
Uh, I read recently, you can look up Open Doors or a charity who, who kind of have good um, research on this and teach us how to pray on it. Uh, they report that each day in Nigeria, 17 Christians are killed every single day because of their faith. Uh, other nations like North Korea, Afghanistan, Burkina Faso, it is a dangerous place to be a Christian. You, your life may well be at risk for proclaiming Jesus as Lord. Now you and I in our nation here today most likely have never had a kind of direct threat to your life because of your faith. However, I suppose I want to ask the question, have you ever been surprised by the strength of reaction from some to the fact that you are a follower of Jesus, to your faith, to the gospel? It's odd when you stop and think about it, isn't it? It's the best news ever. It is good news. We are telling people how much God loves them and wants a relationship with them. And yet, to some, it is offensive to the degree where you may well face opposition, conflict to that. Um, Let's carry on reading. Uh, When you are persecuted... Oh, sorry, next bit. And all the nations will hate you because you are my followers, but everyone who endures to the end will be saved. All nations will hate you. There will be a worldwide... Obviously, this is where we can understand that Jesus' instructions are not just for his disciples there and then with that short mission because they didn't have time to go beyond Judea. In fact, at the beginning, he said, don't go further. He said, just go to the people of Israel here and now. So Jesus has has now strayed into territory, preparing them for the much larger mission ahead. They probably had no idea how far this good news message would go eventually. But he says, all nations will hate you because you are my followers. But everyone who endures to the end will be saved. There is a promise of justice for those who are on the receiving end of persecution. And some will maybe experience that justice in this life, but one day all will be saved. Eventually, all of us will experience justice in the end. Let's carry on reading. When you are persecuted in one town, flee to the next. I tell you the truth, the Son of Man will return before you have reached all the towns of Israel. This is interesting, isn't it? I suppose for me, I, I hold this intention a little bit with other instructions of Jesus. He says, when you're persecuted in one town, flee to the next. He also tells us at other times to turn the other cheek, doesn't he? We, we have to live with this tension. There may be occasions where we need to stand and receive the consequences of whatever it might be that people are throwing at us. There might be other times where actually it's right to flee. It's right to move on, um, to get away from that persecution. Now, interestingly here as well, I think I'd always misread these verses. I'd always assumed this was one of those strange predictions of Jesus, that the Son of Man will return before you've reached, as in before you've uh, evangelized, reached with the gospel all the towns of Israel. Um, having read about this in the last couple of weeks, actually, um, it, the, the implication here is before you have fled through all the towns of Israel rather than before you have evangelized all uh, the towns of Israel. In other words, one commentator says essentially what Jesus is saying is that he will not return before the whole nation has run you out of town. 
Interestingly, within a few years, uh, Christians were being persecuted for their faith. We've, we've already touched on this. Even in Jerusalem, uh, the Jewish authorities, the religious authorities, Paul or Saul as he was himself, um, dealing out persecutions, chasing after these, uh, these believers and trying to run them out of town. In other areas we read in, in the Greek and Roman cities in the area, we can read in the book of Acts at places like Thessalonica where, uh, again, Christians were persecuted for following Jesus. In Rome, um, there are some horrific stories of what were done to Christians simply because they put their, traith, their faith and trust in Jesus. And then after years and years of persecution that happened through the book of Acts, something very strange happened in the history of this kind of grand narrative of faith. This is after the Bible has been um, written, so we don't have it recorded in the Bible. Uh, but the Roman Empire then went and adopted Christianity as the official religion. Um, this chap who hangs round outside York Minster most days, um, Constantine, uh, we've had a big discussion in the office this week, is it Constantine or Constantine? We have no idea, and apparently nobody does because that wasn't his real name, he was Constantinius. So there you go. Uh, but this guy, I'm going for whichever one comes out of my mouth at the time, um, he said, in a, he is said to in 312 uh, AD, he's said to have converted to Christianity personally, and then in uh, 313, he declared tolerance of Christianity across the entire empire. This was a huge turning point in the history of the church, and historians disagree on lots of different things around this. Was his faith genuinely authentic, uh, or what was his motive for embracing it? Um, what is certain, however, is that this led to a move where Christianity moved from the margins to the center, from being persecuted by the power structures to being part of the power structures themselves and at times, in fact, became the agent of persecution. Uh, that is the sad truth about the church um, in over many years um, in, in certain ways. The reality is this was a significant, significant moment in the history of the church. It had been under persecution. People had been following these instructions and understanding we will be hauled before the courts. And then all of a sudden, not only are they tolerated, but the Christian faith is embraced by those in power of the Roman Empire at the time. And the Christian faith at times was even used as an agent of persecution. The reality is that that, the church being part of the power structures, has continued in one form or another in many nations around the world, including ours, um, to this day now. But we find ourselves in a really interesting moment, I would suggest, in the course of hi the history of the church in our <coughs> nation. Uh, we have the church, particularly the Church of England, deeply embedded within our state infrastructure. We're about to coronate, is that a verb? Can I say that word? No, crown. <laughs> Thanks, Melinda. <laughs> I thought, you know, when you say something, think that doesn't sound right. We're about to crown. <laughs> We're about to crown King Charles. And how is it going to be done? 
by archbishops and bishops, by people of faith. We have this embedding of the church in our state infrastructure, and yet, in Yorkshire, the latest statistics are that just 1.4% of the population are regular church attenders, and somehow we still have this position within our power structures. <clears throat> However, I suppose what I want to suggest without trying to make any uh, accurate predictions around this, because only a fool would do so, you would assume, and it would look like, the trajectory is toward the church playing a lesser role in the power structures within our nation. Just this week, um, I wasn't looking for these things, I just came across these things this week. You may have seen an article um, in the news about Justin Welby, uh, the Archbishop of Canterbury, having a meeting uh, with 12 MPs who were not happy about um, the fact that the Church of England has such a prominent role with the state, and, um, and essentially he, was, he, he hasn't quite denied it or confirmed it, but he was reported to have said in that meeting that he would rather um, lose, be disestablished, see the Church of England taken out of the power structures, than compromise on the current line that the Church of England holds around same-sex marriage. For him, he said it was about the unity of the worldwide Anglican Church. But interesting to see where that goes. There is, to hear the Archbishop talk about disestablishment, as in the, the church being taken away from that role uh, within the state, that's an interesting moment, isn't it? I also came across, again, just randomly this week, um, a well-known comedian who has started a permission to try and see, I think it's 26 bishops from the Church of England who automatically have a seat in the House of Lords at the moment. Uh, no other faiths have that automatic right. Um, this uh, comedian um, was also um, stating that there are only two nations in the world where religious leaders automatically have a seat in the power structures, and the other country is Iran. And uh, this person was making a comparison between the UK and Iran and saying, let's make that a club of one rather than us being part of it. They've now started a petition um, to have those bishops removed from uh, the House of Lords. Now, interesting, I, I suppose our response, I, I'd be interested to know, to go around and poll all of you, what is your initial response to that? Do you think, oh, this is the beginning of the end, you know, the decline of Christianity in our nation? Um, I, would, I would suggest it needs a slightly more thoughtful response than that. I'm not suggesting that you go straight out and sign that petition to remove the bishops from the House of Lords. However, the church started on the margins, and I would want to ask the question, in our day, with 1.4% of people in Yorkshire, and that's broadly reflective across the country, different areas slightly higher, but if 1.4% of people in our kind of area in Yorkshire right now are committed believers, followers of Christ, might I ask the question, how is it going with Christianity at the heart of our power structures in our nation. It doesn't feel like we've seen great success in seeing people come to faith, does it? Now, historically, maybe that's been different. That we could have a whole discussion and debate, and I don't want to go too strong on this. I really want us to ask questions about this. 
does the church function best when it is embedded with the power structures of the day, or does the church grow when it is actually under persecution and in a minority? I would suggest evidence at the moment says it is stronger and it is more uh, vibrant and it is growing when it is on the margins and persecuted. The trajectory, I would suggest, is in that direction anyway. That is the feel of where things are going. So I believe that Jesus' instructions today are more and more relevant. As people become more hostile to the church and our message, then Jesus' instructions 2,000 years ago to his initial followers I believe, are more and more relevant than ever. I actually want to, having said all this, just read through the whole passage in one go for us to hear in this context of a nation where we are right now, uh, where there is more hostility towards the church and towards Jesus uh, than I would suggest there has been in a long, long time. So let's read this together through from um, verse 16. Look, I am sending you out as sheep among wolves, so be as shrewd as snakes and harmless as doves. But beware, for you will be handed over to the courts and will be flogged with whips in the synagogues. You will stand trial before governors and kings because you are my followers. But this will be your opportunity to tell the rulers and other unbelievers about me. When you are arrested, don't worry about how to respond or what to say. God will give you the right words at the right time, for it is not you who will be speaking. It will be the spirit of your father speaking through you. A brother will betray his brother to death. A father will betray his own child, and children will rebel against their parents and cause them to be killed. And all nations will hate you because you are my followers. But everyone who endures to the end will be saved. When you are persecuted in one town, flee to the next. I tell you the truth. The Son of Man will return before you have reached all the towns of Israel. So for us today, maybe we need to be a bit less like sheep and a little bit more living in that snake-dove tension. We need to expect opposition, but not to live in fear of it or to fear how we respond or what to say. Maybe we need to take inspiration from those guys in Acts 4, praying for boldness for each one of us. You know, often the church around the world under persecution are not asking us to pray for the persecution to end. They are praying for strength to endure and for courage and boldness to continue to speak the gospel. Maybe we should be expecting betrayal, even hatred. Now, it's hard, isn't it? I really want to be liked by people. I don't know about you. I, I, I believe this is a good news message. I believe what we speak is a message of love for people. We are saying there is a way to be reconciled to God. This is a good news message. And I want people to, re- to respond by saying, yes, that's a great message, isn't it? I'm so positive about that. Where do I sign up? And some will. But we have to recognize that some people find our message deeply offensive, deeply offensive. And therefore, we have to recognize 
that some people will respond and there will be an increase, I believe, in persecution in our time. So what I want to do before uh, I finish here, and musicians, why don't you come on up, is I just want to pray for us. Uh, I want to pray um, for various things around this and pray for strength for each one of us. Now, listen, I don't, I don't want to... Th- th- today, you could go away thinking, oh, gosh, this was all a bit negative, wasn't it? Uh, and, and, and in some ways, it is. I'm, you know, sometimes for me, my thing is like, yeah, the kingdom of God is coming, therefore everything should be up and to the right. Um, but I think the reality is that, you know, we are seeing in our time a trajectory that I, I, I think that's probably where it's headed, and therefore we need to be prepared for this. I would highly recommend a book um, to you that is, it's linked to this. It's not the same topic, but uh, a guy called Mark Sayers has written a book called A Non-Anxious Presence, which I read over uh, the Christmas period. is is just incredible. The first half is really depressing about the world and the state we're in, not just in terms of like the church, but actually in terms of the institutions that are crumbling around us in the world today. Uh, Do not give up on that book halfway through. Um, Stay until the end, because the second half is a hope-filled kind of thing of this is where the church will thrive as other institutions crumble, as, you know, kind of the, the cost of living and all of this and lots of things will fail, they're predicting in the next. Did you know, I've, I heard this week that, you know, at Davos, all the rich and famous people come, the top 100 CEOs or the, 100, the CEOs of the top 100 companies in the world were interviewed. 40% of them said they didn't believe their company would exist in 10 years' time. Um, Like, lots of things are crumbling, and very few people are still saying, oh, it's all going to be up and to the right. That seems to be the way things are headed, and yet, God's kingdom is coming in the midst of it, and there is hope, and this is where the church flourishes. This is where the gospel will go forth. So I am not fearful at all, and I would encourage us to remain strong and remain hopeful that that God is with us in all of this, and his kingdom will come. So shall we stand? And uh, I want to pray. Father God, we exist in the time we exist in, and you, in in your divine authority, in your divine plan, you said that for each one of us here in this room today, you wanted us here in this world, in this place, for this moment, at this time in history. You have great plans for us. You are with us in everything. And Jesus, while you warn us and you prepare us for times like this, where we see an increase in hostility towards you, your message, your church, to us, you prepare us for that because you love us and you want us to thrive in the midst of hostility. And you command us not to fear. How many times in the Bible do you say, do not fear? It's the the most commonly repeated command in the Bible. Do not fear. Do not be afraid. And Jesus, if we go away from today feeling fearful, then we've got it wrong. (laughs) And maybe I've got it wrong in the way I've presented it. You, You don't tell us this stuff. You don't warn us this stuff to so that we might fear. You warn us so that we might be prepared so that we might have our expectations aligned with yours. And so, Jesus, whatever happens, 
going forward. Whether there is great revival in our nation and the institutions and powers even are aligned with you and who you are and what you're about, then we say, great, we're going to be standing firm in you and on your truth. But if the opposite happens, if we see the church disestablished, if our nation, if the power structures in our nations reject the church and faith completely, we say, God, we're going to continue to stand firm in you, on your truth, on your words, in your gospel. And whatever happens, we are going to continue to preach the good news because it is good news and it's the truth. God, we have no other option. And if there are consequences for us, we pray you would give us strength, you would give us boldness, and we thank you that you promise that you will give us the right words to say when we are questioned for why we do things a certain way or why we believe what we believe. So we come before you, God, today. Would you give us great courage? Would you give us great strength? God, would you be our strength and would you be our courage in our time as we seek to be your church, as we seek to fulfill your mission to go into the whole world, make disciples, teach people how to obey all your commands, baptize them, see your kingdom come, see your church grow. Thank you that you are with us. We want to reaffirm ourselves to you and to your mission, no matter what the cost. Thank you, Jesus. And Father, I just want to pray for anyone here who was in that situation I described earlier, where they're experiencing conflict in their family because they have said that they follow you, Jesus. God, that is a really, really difficult situation. That is so hard to, for the people you love to be in conflict with them because you believe something and they, haven't just, they just haven't seen it yet. And so I want to pray for people in that situation. I want to pray that you would surround them with your peace and your comfort. I want to pray that you would enable us as the church to get around them and to be family to them. And I want to pray just great strength for them, God. Would you give them in those situations great strength and great courage? And finally, God, I want to pray for people around the world, in our, our brothers and sisters in Christ, in nations where people have to choose between saying publicly that they profess faith in Christ or face persecution, jail, death, whatever it might be. God, would you strengthen your worldwide church, people in those nations? Would they know your power with them? And we thank you that everyone who endures to the end will be saved. We thank you for that promise. And we pray for those who are literally facing that life or death situation. Would you encourage them with that truth today even, as they know that people, believers, are gathering around the world to worship you? Would they know that we stand in unity with them? And would they know your promise that if they endure to the end, they will be saved. They will see justice one day. Thank you, God. Amen. Amen.